High King of heaven, O ruler of all. That is our Lord, that is our God, that is our King. We're, of course, going to continue to hear a lot about kings in the near future with the passing of the Queen of England and the institution of a new monarch. And there's nothing wrong biblically with earthly monarchs, but there is only one king who is ruler of all, and we serve him. Let's turn together this morning to Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 19, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading from verse 19 through verse 26. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Father, we pray that we would have a sense of amazement as we come to your word this morning. For Christ's sake, Father. Amen. A dozen years ago, there was a book published entitled The Unlikely Disciple. It was written by a young man named Kevin Roos. Roos was a student originally at Brown University. But while he was a student, he transferred to Liberty University in Virginia, a school founded by Jerry Falwell, a Christian university. His intent was to pose as an evangelical Christian so as to immerse himself in the culture of conservative Christianity, thereby gaining enough information to write a book exposing what he believed would be the embarrassing weaknesses of an evangelical college. Something like that is happening in this passage that we're looking at this morning. As we've seen through our study of this gospel, there is an ongoing interplay 
between the leaders of the people, variously referred to as the Pharisees or the chief priests and the scribes or the elders. These are all different ways of describing men who had authority in Israel in that day, whether that authority be religious in nature or political, there really wasn't much of a distinction there. No one in that day, either in the Roman Empire or in Israel, held to anything like our concept of the separation of church and state. So we find Luke repeatedly describing various encounters between these Jewish leaders and Jesus in which the leaders of the people are invariably trying to trick Jesus into saying something that they can use against him. They want to try to make him look bad in the eyes of the Jewish people or the Romans or both. And here we are in the days just prior to his arrest and crucifixion, and they're still trying And in this account that we'll be examining today, it is the chief priests and the scribes who are making the attempt, while in the passage we'll look at next week, it is the Sadducees of whom we'll speak when we get to verse 27. Well, as we've just read, the question that they try to trap him with in this passage has to do with taxation. Should they, as Jews, pay taxes to their Roman overlords. If Jesus told them to pay their taxes, then he would lose face with his fellow Jews. And if he told them to stop paying taxes, then they would run to the Roman authorities and they would have Jesus arrested for insurrection. They thought they had him. The chief priests and scribes know that they can't take a a frontal assault against Jesus at this particular moment, lest their plan backfire and the people end up supporting Jesus and turning on them. That's a danger. You'll remember Jesus has just come into the city a short time ago and the people were crying out, Hosanna. They were laying down palm fronds in the In the road, they were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah that they've been waiting for who would indeed kick Rome out of Israel and reestablish the Davidic kingdom. So their strategy is to pose as those who respect Jesus, to pose as those who are sincere followers of his, who desire to be taught by him. And so they send spies, essentially. They send these men to Jesus while he's teaching to ask him questions, seeking to entrap him. Questions that might potentially embarrass him. Questions that might get him in trouble with the Roman government or cause him to lose favor among the people. That's what they're trying to do. But of course, as we have seen over and over and over and over again, they're just not good enough. The chief priests and scribes choose a question that relates to one of the burning controversies of the day, and a question that still sounds very familiar to us. What is the proper response to the Roman occupation? Should we be paying tribute 
to Caesar? Is paying tribute to Caesar in some way a failure to give proper and honor glory to God? Some in Jesus' day were advocating armed violent rebellion against Caesar. Some were saying that in order to be a true follower of God, in order to be faithful to the God of Israel, they should foment rebellion and revolution against the state. Others were saying that they should accommodate themselves to the Roman occupation. They're here. We're not going to be able to get rid of them. So let's just try to get by the best we can. And all of that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? These were burning questions then. They were both theological and political questions. And they are the same kinds of questions dealing with the relationship of God's people to the governing authorities that we're still asking today. Of course, this question was not being asked sincerely. They were asking these questions to seek to trap Jesus in their snare. And in this entrapment, we learn many things. We want to focus on just a few of them this morning. And the first one is this. As we look at this attempt to ensnare Jesus, we see in verses 19 through 22 that the strategy which the chief priests and the scribes are using only serves to reveal their own hearts. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him at that very hour, and they feared the people. For they understood that he, had, he spoke this parable against them. So they watched and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and uh, and, and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And as these, these men come to Jesus, the strategy that they adopt, which so clearly reveals their hearts, is that they lie. They lie because their father is the father of lies. They lie because they have adopted the strategy of the serpent in the garden. It is a strategy of insincerity and deception, and the strategy itself reveals who it is they are aligned with. They claim to love God. They claim to love the world. They claim to be concerned about the fact that Jesus is blaspheming God. That's essentially why they have wanted to catch him all this time, they say. And yet, in the strategy that they adopt to get him, they show that their hearts are wrong. And Luke wants us to see that. 
We're told, first off, in verse 19, that they wanted to lay hands on him. That was their goal, but they feared the people. So they couldn't take a strategy of just going up to him and grabbing him and carrying him off to the governor's house. That wasn't going to work. They had to find some way to get him to incriminate himself. And so they watch him and they send spies who pretend to be righteous so that they can catch him in some statement so that they then could deliver him over to the governor. And they ask him a question that is designed to embarrass him or endanger him. They believe that they finally been able to formulate a question that he cannot get out of. And either he will be embarrassed in front of the people or he will incriminate himself in front of the Romans. So they are acting in an insincere, duplicitous, deceptive way. That very strategy, the very means that they have adopted reveals their Hearts. And that, brothers and sisters, is a message for all of us. Is it not? If we name the name of Christ, that carries with it an obligation to conduct ourselves in a manner which honors him. A manner which is consistent with the one who says of himself that I am the truth. It's not what we say we believe, it's whether we live what we say we believe. Do we live out what we say we believe to be the word of God, to be that truth? The language of Christianity is very easy for someone to lay claim to, but it is the fruit of the life that shows the heart. And in the very strategy that these chief priests and scribes take now, they show the state of their heart. And it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus knows. Jesus perceives it. Jesus looks right through them to their heart. And he knows who they are. And he knows what they're trying to do. And likewise, our strategies, how we relate to people, how we conduct ourselves. It is known. Our hearts are transparent. If we believe God, if we believe his word, if we're concerned about the well-being of his people, how does that lead us to behave to one another in the context of family or work or the church? Do we live in our behavior up to the standards which we claim to adhere to from the word of God. The reality is that for those of us who know Christ, we know more than we do. We know more than we do. That will always be the case, won't it? It is one of the great frustrations of the Christian life. We study our Bibles... We sit under sound teaching, we are taught and we learn, but we so often fail to live up to that which we know. 
Do we do what we say we believe or do we just give lip service to being faithful followers of Jesus Christ? If we are genuine children of God through faith in Christ, we will never in this life live up to that which we know. Because we're in process, brothers and sisters. We are all being taken from where God found us to where he's leading us. And along the way, he is accomplishing in us that which scripture refers to as our sanctification. He's making us more and more like Christ. But for those of us who truly love Christ and desire to be like him, it is an agonizing process. It is so slow. It will not be long before I will have been walking with Christ for 50 years. And I've got so much further to go. That process that God has been working out in me since that moment I came to faith in Christ is still going on. And I'm still failing. And I still don't do all that I know. And that's going to be the case until I finally see the Lord face to face. That will be glory. This is sometimes agony. I know what it means to be faithful. I know what his word says. I know what is required of me. I want that. I desire to be faithful. And yet I fail again and again. And I can stand up here in front of you all and confess that because I know you're no different. We are all in the same boat. The boat of sanctification. But praise God, the promise is that it's not up to us. The Lord is working in us. And yet our sanctification is a cooperative effort. Our justification, that's all him. We are dead in our sin. God makes us alive in Christ. He grants us the gift of repentance and faith. That's all him. But when it comes to our sanctification, there are a lot of imperatives in scripture. Do this, don't do that. And we are called upon to be obedient to those imperatives. Let me just take a moment and remind you of something that Paul says in his epistle to the Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation With fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. 
Now, be very careful there. Don't misread it. Don't read it too quickly. It does not say, work for your salvation. It says, work it out. Which means, you already possess it. Now live like it. Live according to the salvation which is already yours. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Paul often often gives us reasons for what he tells us to do. He gives us a command and then tells us why we should do it. Here's the why. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now here's what Paul means. You ought to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you have the confidence that God is already at work in you. If God was not at work in me, I could work all day long and nothing would happen. But I can work out my salvation in the certain knowledge that it will accomplish what God desires because God is at work in me already to do what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is already, because I am his child, he has given me the desire to work out my salvation. He's put that will within me. And he is also working in me so that I will work for his good pleasure. So our sanctification is all bound up together. God plays a role in it and I play a role in it. And as I grow in grace, I become more and more like the Savior. I love God more. I love righteousness more. I hate sin more. Those are changes that take place imperceptibly over the course of years, over the course of a life, until finally God brings us home and completes that work in our glorification. But what does it mean then? Practically speaking, to work out our salvation. Part of what it means is that we live what we profess. Not like the chief priests and the scribes. We believe that Jesus, our Lord, is the truth. Well, our lives ought to reflect that. We ought to be people of truth. For us, it's not the fact that we sin which reveals our hearts, we are imperfectly sanctified. What reveals our hearts, as opposed to the scribes and the the, the chief priests, is our response to that sin when we do fall. Does it cause us to grieve? Does it drive us to confession and repentance? For the child of God, that's what happens. We grieve over our sin. We hate our sin. We want to please our Lord. 
But for these chief priests and scribes, it was the pursuit of sin which revealed their hearts. Because they were just going for it. They knew. And they didn't grieve over their sin. They pursued their sin. So the question then comes to us, what does our behavior, what does our response to that behavior reveal about the state of our hearts? Do we live out what we claim to believe? And when we fail, do we grieve over that failure? And do we repent of it and turn away from it? That's the first thing that I think we need to see in this passage this morning. The second is this, and you can almost pass over it, but it's emphasized, I think, in the very first verse and in the last verse of the passage before us this morning. But especially look at verse 19. There is not only an attempt here at entrapping Jesus, there is also what we might refer to as an ignored perception. Verse 19 tells us that the chief priests and scribes fully understood that when Jesus told the preceding parable, he was talking about them. They knew that Jesus was speaking directly to them, and yet they did not listen. They did not believe. They did not pay heed to his word. They did not pay attention in their hearts to the word that had come directly to them. Can you imagine standing before God on that last day, knowing that the one sitting on the throne had spoken directly and specifically to you, and you ignored it. Well, God has given us his word. And every time we hear his word read, every time we hear his word rightly proclaimed, Every time we open the word for ourselves and read it and studying it, we are hearing him speak a word directly and specifically to us. These Jewish leaders knew that Jesus had been speaking directly to them, but they ignored the message, and so many of us do the same. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, over and over, the author of Hebrews keeps driving this one message home. He takes it right out of Psalm 95 when he says, Today, if you heed his voice, do not harden your hearts. These had heard the voice of the incarnate God, and it did not penetrate. They hardened their hearts. If God is speaking to you in his word, and he is now, this morning, do not harden your hearts. That is exactly what these religious leaders did. And you see them do it again at the end of the passage. You look down to verse 26. After Jesus responds with this amazing response, we're told that they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. So they're still resisting. They don't say, this was an amazing thing, this man truly is of God, and we really should pay attention to what he's saying here, and we should repent of this plot we've put together. They don't say that. They still lament the fact that they were unable to trap him. 
They were dumbstruck by his answer, but still didn't believe him. They are stunned into silence. His answer is so brilliant, so pastoral, so godly, so profound, that they didn't know what to do with it. Do you sit under the word of God day by day, week by week, Sunday by Sunday, and hear the word of God in your ears, but don't let it penetrate? Don't embrace it. Are you one who hears but doesn't allow it to touch you? If we do that, then we're in the position of the ones who are trying to trap Jesus on that day. They ignored a word from God from the lips of Jesus which was meant specifically for them. When the word of God calls you to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of his grace, you need to listen. When the word of God calls you to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you need to listen. When the word of God calls you to die to self and to live for righteousness, to take up your cross and follow him, you need to listen. Don't sit in the seat of the chief priests and the scribes who heard Jesus speak a word directly to them, directly meant for them, and then proceed to ignore it. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, The chief priests and elders perceived that this parable was spoken against them, but they were too proud to repent and too hardened to turn from their sins. Let us beware of doing likewise. That is a word in season for all of us. Well, there's one last marvelous thing that I want you to see in the passage today, and that is the wise pronouncement which Jesus makes. You understand what's going on here. The chief priests and the scribes know that there is a tremendous divide in Israel in regard to the Roman occupation. Some people in Israel want revolution. There are some people that think that the way to honor God, the way to honor God's word, the way to get things back the way they used to be in Israel's so-called golden age is to foment rebellion against Caesar, kick out the Romans, and establish the Davidic kingdom once again. In fact, when Jesus was just a little boy, somewhere maybe between the ages of 6 and 10 years old, there was a huge tax revolt in Palestine against the Romans. And the Romans brutally suppressed that revolt, but there were still people around in Jesus' day who thought that the way to honor God was to reject the rule of Caesar and attempt to kick out the Romans and to reestablish that Davidic line. In fact, Jesus had at least one whom he chose to be among the twelve who came out of that political perspective. He was from the party of the Zealots. His name was Simon, not Simon Peter, another Simon. But he was a Zealot. And the Zealots wanted armed revolt. 
There were some among the zealots who would surreptitiously commit murder. They would keep a knife concealed, and when they had the opportunity and a Roman soldier came by, they'd do for him. Well, the zealots were some of these people that wanted to kick the Romans out of Palestine, reestablish the rule of God by force. Now, the chief priests and the scribes knew that if Jesus said in answer to their question, no, it's wrong to pay tribute to Caesar, that they could immediately put him in irons and take him to the Roman ruler, accuse him of treason, of fomenting rebellion, and they would have Jesus out of their way. And they half suspected him of that anyway. He clearly was opposed to their running of the temple. He had just kicked out the money changers, remember. Just cleansed the temple just a few hours before this. He was no friend to their leadership. And of course, they were part of the accommodationist party in Israel. They had cozied up to the Romans. They had uh, many of their positions and privileges because they cooperated with the Romans. And so they thought if we can get him to deny that it's right to give tribute to Rome, we can get him thrown in prison. Or they thought if he won't say that outright, if, if he won't say you shouldn't give tribute to Caesar, if he won't say that, if he says, yes, you should pay your taxes, you should pay that tribute, then he's going to lose popular support. Because they suspected, suspected that among his followers were those people who tended towards revolution. And so they're putting him in what they thought was the perfect catch-22. They were going to ask him a question to which he could not give a correct answer. And they thought they had him. And you would just, you would think they would know better by now. It's exactly what we've just seen in Jeremiah The people here, over and over again, Jeremiah comes. Judgment is coming. You're going to be carried away into Babylon. Jerusalem, the temple, is going to be destroyed. God is speaking to you. And they don't listen. And then everything that Jeremiah says happens. And as we heard this morning, they come back to Jeremiah and says, go pray for us and tell us what we should do. And Jeremiah does that. And he comes back and tells them what they should do. And they do exactly the opposite. Because even after Jeremiah is proved right, there are still false prophets there in Judah saying, no, 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 he's still wrong. What do you mean still? He's never been wrong. You guys have been wrong. Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, Sadducees, they're constantly coming to Jesus. We've seen this over and over and over. And Jesus constantly outwits them. And they never learn. And so here's Jesus. He's got to answer in such a way that he doesn't fall into their trap. But Jesus is never seeking simply to avoid a trap. He uses his words to edify his people and to glorify God. 
So Jesus is going to answer in such a way that he not only sidesteps the trap, but in a way that glorifies God and edifies anyone who will listen. So he says to the chief priests and the scribes, well, show me a denarius. Denarius is, of course, a Roman coin, and it was, uh, would have been a day's wage for a, a, a common laborer. Now, these were not made in Palestine. They were brought into Palestine and then circulated around. Many of them had a picture of the emperor and an inscription upon them. Now, you remember the Romans thought that the emperor was divine, and the inscription indicated that. And when you recognize that, now you start to see why this is such a sensitive issue. If I'm using these coins, and if you're going to pay taxes to Rome, you've got to pay with Roman coin, am I affirming the deity of Caesar? So you can see why this would have been offensive to Jews who did not believe in making graven images. And of course who only believed that Jehovah is God. And so Jesus says, well, show me one of these coins. And then he asks, whose picture is on this? Whose image is this? Whose inscription is this? Jesus looks at it. They look at it. They say, well, of course, it's, it's Caesar's. That's the whole point. That's the basis of our trap. And you might, if we could get into the heads of the chief priests and the scribes, they might think in that moment, ah, we've got him. This is exactly the point that we're trying to make. But Jesus looks at them, of course, and gives them an answer that they don't expect. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This was the great political struggle of Jesus' day. And what had Jesus done? He had just risen above it all. He hadn't gotten himself involved in the petty politics of his day. He's transcended them. He's pointed to a far more profound truth than was contemplated in this petty, entrapping question that the scribes and the chief priests were asking him. You see what Jesus is doing. He's giving instruction to his people concerning how to live in a secular society, even under duress and opposition and persecution from the ruling authorities in that world. The words that Jesus spoke are simply worked out later by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. And they provide the guidance that the early Christians would have needed for 400 years of persecution and to this day have helped believers know. How can we be in the world but not of it? How can we show proper, appropriate honor to civil authorities while showing ultimate allegiance to our God and never confusing the two? Because in Jesus' words, he simply says this, did Caesar build your roads? Does he provide your system of administration and justice? 
Well, then give him the tribute that he deserves, but render to God what belongs to him. Just think this through for a moment. Jesus makes the point by calling attention to the image on the coin. His point is, image implies ownership. The denarius intended to pay taxes unto Caesar belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. Now ask yourself, where is God's image? God's image is you. We were created in the image of God. And so if we are going to render back to God what he deserves, what are you going to render to him? Yourself. You belong to him. If it's appropriate to show respect to secular civil authority and to give it its due, your ultimate allegiance is to the one whose image is imprinted upon you. Give to him what belongs to him. That is the whole of who you are. Because he gave you all you are. He's given you all you have. You are made in his image. You belong to him. See, Jesus is showing us how we're not to love the world ultimately, but to love God ultimately. We're not to use God and love the world. We're to love God and use the world. That's what it means to be a steward. That's the position God put us in in the garden. We are stewards of the creation. And we are to live in sometimes difficult circumstances, not only in the creation generally, but in societies specifically. And in society, in this world, which is opposed to the things of God, that will sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, be difficult. And we've got to figure out what it means to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. It's not always obvious. It's not always as simple as looking at the image on a coin. The church has always had to struggle with this from the very beginning. How do we exist in an empire in which the emperor calls himself a god? How do we submit to the governing authorities while proclaiming the truth that there is only one God? When a government demands your total and complete allegiance, how do you live in that society when your ultimate allegiance is to another. Brothers and sisters, 
I'm not standing here this morning saying that I have the answers to all these questions. The church has been struggling with these questions from the beginning. But there is one answer that covers everything in one way or another. And that is, I belong to God and not to the state. How that works itself out is going to change depending on the form of government, depending on one's time in history, depending on specific issues that we're dealing with. But that's where we start. The image of God is on me, and so I belong to him. Now how do I live as a child of God? One aspect of living as a faithful child of God is being a faithful subject of the civil authorities. When those things conflict, that's where we have problems. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That's where we start. It is a biblical answer. It is a profound answer. And it has given guidance to countless millions of Christians over the last 2,000 years. And it ought to serve to make us love Jesus more. Here he is in a situation where people are trying to abuse and use and trap him. And he comes out not only with the response which is equal to and greater than their own question. He comes out with a word of edification to help you work through your priorities in your own situation. How do you keep God first? Feel free to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but don't you dare give to Caesar what belongs to God. Our ultimate allegiance, Jesus is teaching, belongs to him. This doesn't preclude us showing appropriate respect for the governing authorities, but ultimately our allegiance belongs to God. That is a reality which we need to drink in here in our own time because, brothers and sisters, it is only going to get more difficult. We have entered into a stage in our experience in our own nation, in our own culture, where we can expect more and more overt opposition to God and to his word. And in that context, we need to start thinking about what it means to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but to God that which belongs to God. Father, we need your help in this. We need your help in this. These are difficult issues. And I fear that difficult days lie ahead of us as we seek to put this seemingly simple principle into play in our lives in what will not be simple circumstances. And so we plead with you, Father, Help us.
teach us, give us clarity of thought, that we might respond to the challenges of our own lives as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen.